Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. But uh, we're starting the book of Philippians tonight. So let's open in prayer. Father, thanks for this night to study. I pray that as we examine your word, you'd open our hearts. Thank you for this wonderful book and for this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Um, The book of Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles. I think we all discussed that earlier on. What was a... What was his prison? What's the other prison epistles? No, those aren't the prison epistles. Those are the pastoral epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Yeah, those are the other ones. And where were these written? When he was in prison? Yeah. California. He was in prison. This is the first time he was in prison. Um, and it was around A.D. 60 to 62, somewhere around in there, in Rome. And from there he wrote these prison epistles. This was in A.D. 62? A.D. 62, right around A.D. 62 is when this book was written. And uh, it was written back to a church in Philippi. Now, where was Philippi, for all you geographically minded people? North of Yeah, it was the... It was really the one of the first churches, or if, if it was the first church, that Paul founded on a European continent. And if you remember the the story around the founding of this church in Philippi, you go back to Acts chapter 16, and we find in Acts 16, verse 6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Bithynia, Galatia, these are all provinces. And these are the provinces in northern Turkey that we, if you look at a map and look at the north part of Turkey, that's where these provinces are. Um, So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is the Macedonian call. This is where Paul went over to Europe. He made the trip over there, and in verse 11... Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. The next day came to Neapolis, which was a city of Macedonia. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia colony. Um, That meant it was a free city. The idea of a free city is that basically they were allowed to do their own thing, provided they didn't cause Rome any trouble. And it was a very important thing for you to be a free city in those days. There was a lot of privileges associated with that. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, it's interesting. um, The people, cities that did not have a synagogue met down at the riverside. Um, And most likely, this did not have a synagogue because it took 12 Jewish men to create a synagogue. Um, and it says on the Sabbath, instead of going to the synagogue, as he would normally have done, he went down to the riverside. 
And uh, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Was she a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile. They're called God worshippers. Um, they were people that, that were attracted to the Jewish religion because of their high moral standard, their ethics, things like that. But they were not Jews. And said, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And then we have the account in the next verses of the, of the spirit of divination, the gal with the spirit of divination that followed them around. And Paul finally had to cast the demon out of her because if he had not done so, when he left, she would become the spiritual leader in that city. And of course... Once he left, the tune of Satan would have changed dramatically. And they were beaten. Verse 20, they were brought before the magistrates. And uh, the command them beaten with rods. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, according to Roman law, they could not do that. That was lack of due process. And by beating these men, these magistrates were really um, jeopardizing their careers with Rome. Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And they weren't allowed to do that. As a Roman citizen, you had a great deal of privileges. And one of them was that you were not to be beaten with rods unless it was after due process. And uh, they weren't even given a trial. They were just beaten with rods. And they were thrown into the prison, another no-no, because they did not have due process. And uh, were put in the inner prison. And then we have the account of the earthquake and, of course, the Philippian jailer's conversion. And uh, it's interesting, later that, that next day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come out themselves and get us out. So Paul was exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, saying, no, they weren't to beat us as a Roman citizen, put us in here. They're, if they want us out, they're going to have to come and get us. And uh, they came with egg on their face and really begged Paul to leave the city. And then Paul goes over to Thessalonica, in chapter 17. From there he goes to Berea, and then he goes down to Athens. So this is Paul's missionary journey. It's, what number is this? What number missionary journey is this? No. Second missionary journey. First missionary journey was just the area of Galatia. The second missionary journey, Paul went to the area of Galatia and then went over to Macedonia and, and from there down to Greece, Corinth. And on his third missionary journey, he really visited the same churches that he had already established. But this is the founding of the church. It was founded by Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And that's one of the Roman, or one of the churches in the books of Revelation, the city of Thyatira. Pardon? She was really far from home. Yeah. Evidently, she was a merchant person, um, you know, merchant woman who went around selling these and by the way the purple was um, extremely 
It was an extremely costly dye in those days. Um, it was very expensive, so she probably made a good living at that. Um, but in Philippians chapter 1, we are introduced, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, immediately, all of the liberal scholars have a problem with that. Because they say, wait a minute, you have bishops and deacons. Uh, we know they didn't come around till long after the first century. Therefore, this church is, or this book is anachronistic. It couldn't have been written when it was written. Well, that's a silly statement because back in Acts chapter 6, very early, you have deacons. And in the pastoral epistles, which are written, you know, only a few years after this, you have elders, which is, by the way, the, the idea of bishop there. Um, don't let that bother you. Don't let the you know, the liberal scholars um, sway you. This is a bona fide book. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine making a request for you all with joy. Joy is one of the key words in the book of Philippians. Joy all the way through. Joy and rejoice. And Paul thanked God for this church. And in every prayer and every time he went to the Lord in prayer, he was reminded of this church and it brought joy to his heart. They were probably the church that Paul was closest to. Um, what church caused Paul the most trouble? Pardon? Corinth. What church caused Paul the most joy? Philippi. Philippi. Of all the churches that Paul was that Paul was close to, this was probably the closest one, the most dear church to him. He had the closest ties with this church emotionally. And also this church, as he says later on, you're the only one that helped me. You're the only one that helped me in my ministry. They sent gifts to Paul. In fact, um, the reason, one of the reasons Paul wrote Philippians is to thank the church for the, for the gift that they gave him in terms of Epaphroditus who came and brought a gift to him. And he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Thanking God for the fellowship. Fellowship, that's another key word in Galatians, joy and fellowship. Fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. You ever hear that word? We, we throw that one around a lot. Koinonia. And koinonia means sharing. Just sharing. Sharing together. Um, Maybe sharing a meal together, sharing experiences together. Just sharing together. And the sharing here for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day, what day is that? Well, that's the day they first met until now, the sharing in the gospel. When you think of fellowship, what do you usually think of? Food. Yeah, food. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Fellowship hall. What do you do in fellowship halls? You eat, all right? Um, Ralph Neighbor Fellowship Center. What's there? A kitchen. We eat. 
Alright? And that's probably a very apt metaphor. I mean, when you're eating, you're sharing food together. You're sitting down, sharing conversation. But koinonia means fellowship, sharing, common life. And there's a sharing in the gospel. That's one of the interesting things I found is, you know, I travel over the country and go to different churches. There's an, immediately, there's an immediate sharing you have when you walk into a church with other believers. And, and, you know, it can be all over the world, but there's an immediate bond that you have that is just a very precious bond. Um, and notice the fellowship centers around what? No. Around the gospel, the good news, the word of God. That's where true fellowship comes from. Um, one of the interesting things, are bit, I've, I've, I've been part of a lot of discussions at times at, at, um, at our church here, Church of the Open Door. And one of the great desires in the adult Bible fellowships is that we have fellowship. And I remember one well-meaning pastor who's, who's, he doesn't go here anymore, but his plan for fellowship was all of these different activities that you do. Um, you know, planning all these activities. This will bring fellowship. And I argued with him and said, no, I say, I'll tell you what brings fellowship. Bring, brings fellowship is you share the Word of God together as a class. You, you study the Word of God together and out of that will flow fellowship. Out of that will flow everything else. So if you do this right, everything else will come into place. You don't need to create programs and parties and all of this kind of stuff. And I found that to be true. You know, in our, my particular Sunday school class, what we do is we study the Word of God for one hour straight. We don't sing songs, and we have very few announcements, and we don't take offerings. But we get in there, and our, the way we start is we open our Bibles to the next verse that we left off at and see how far we get. And... Uh, when we do have a class outing, we have almost everybody in the class show up. Ninety, anywhere from ninety-five to one hundred percent. I have a class of twenty-five people. We'll have twenty-three at every one of our outings, and it's over the Word of God. It's because we've developed the fellowship in the Word as we've studied it together that has spilled over into other areas. Don, I was just going to say uh, it's not one of those things. To live or die over, but uh, I'm not sure you could really have one without the other because even your statement here, it can only be found when believers are willing to become transparent and share their lives with each other. I think it's one thing to sit in a class and you know listen to an instructor instruct, and I think it's altogether different to be in a setting where people are actually sharing their lives. We do that in the class as well. I mean, it's all it's all one big package. You can't. I don't think you can split pieces out. You know, one of the things is there's always been a battle sometimes over styles. You know, and and there are classes here, for example, where you know you sit around the table and you, you know, you have questions that you do with small groups. You know, and, 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 and he asks, well, what do you think? And, you know, you form these small groups. You have other classes that are very much um, discussion-oriented. Um, 
you have other class where it's more of a you know a movie or a show or you're doing a book or something like that then there's mine which is sort of odd because all we do is just start in the Bible and work our way through we don't have a book we don't have a curriculum we just do verses of the Bible and different things appeal to different people there's nothing wrong with one style over another the problem is is to try and say one style is better than another because people are are drawn necessarily I think to different styles there are some that that don't want to sit around a table um, they want to have a more teaching type orientation um, and it's just different for different people and I found in our class that we've had some really great discussions in class and that has spilled over into our relationships outside of class and it's been it's just it's just worked that's all I can say I don't know why it just works but fellowship is sharing that's all it is it's sharing with one another it's sharing the Word of God together and uh, as time goes on you begin to understand different people um, by the way one thing I, I don't and I'll, I'll maybe talk about this a little bit and that is this notion of total transparency you know there are people who say well before you can really have good fellowship you got to be totally transparent I don't believe that all right um, I don't think it's good to be totally transparent um, because there's some things you just shouldn't be sharing in a public forum. You know, I mean, you don't need to share everything. Um, sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut. You know, um, you know, some, and it goes along with the psychological thing. You know, you got to be totally transparent. No, you don't have to be totally transparent. I mean, I, I think you need to be honest and open and be willing to share, but. I think total transparency is not really a good thing. Um, I think you can go too far in that. And uh, but be that as it may, I I I just found that that sharing over the Word of God, as you discuss the things of the Word of God, as you as you examine the scriptural passages, as you think about how do these apply to my life, I, I think sharing flows out of that. That's what I found. It's work. That's all I can say. It's work. Um, but Paul's gratefulness is their fellowship and sharing with him, not only in the gospel, but in giving and receiving and in all aspects of the Christian life. And then he says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God started, he will complete. Um, that's a comforting thought. There's a point in your life when God started doing some work in your life. And He's going to keep it up until the day of Christ. Until the day when you stand in Christ's presence. It's, it's not going to stop. And who's doing this work? He is. God is. It's not you. You're not, you're not responsible for your own spiritual growth in the sense that it's all up to you to do the growing. Uh, yeah, there's an element in which we have to cooperate. But God is the one who is doing this work in our life. And it says here that Jesus Christ will work in our life until the day of Christ. It's not going to let up. He's going to keep doing that. Um, and Paul is confident, it says here in the notes, 
the joy of confidence in God's perfecting work. He will perfect you. There's going to be a day when I will be all that God wants me to be. And He's going to do that for me. I don't have to do it myself. Just as it was right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Partaker may be another idea there for sharing. Paul was confident that when he was going through the trials he was going through, this is called the joy of participation, that they were there participating in his trial with him. Now how did he know this? How did he know they were sharing with him in his trial? Who showed up? Paphroditus. <coughs> Paphroditus showed up and brought a gift to Paul. And that gift told Paul that the Philippian church was indeed sharing in his affliction in the sense that they were concerned about him. He wasn't going it alone, so to speak. And that brought him great joy that they were there with him. Um, and it calls here in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Later on in this chapter, we note that Paul apparently seems to think that he will soon be freed from prison. And therefore, we would probably place the writing of this book right towards the end of his first Roman imprisonment. He, he almost talked about an immediate release there. And he said, you shared with me not only in my affliction, but in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In my defense before Caesar, I could feel your prayers, so to speak. I could feel your presence with me. We were in this together. And that brought him great joy. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ. This is a man who loved this church. He loved their support of him. He loved their care for him. Now let me ask a question. Um, does your pastor love your church the same way Paul loved this one? Think he does? Just I'm just throwing it out as a yeah. Do you think the church loves the pastor the same way as the Philippians love Paul? 95% of them. 95% of them. That's what I'm wanting to get at. In some cases it may be lower. In some cases it may be lower or higher. But um, what, what brought Paul and the Philippian church together? The gospel caused their sharing. But do you think it possibly could be the fact that Paul was in prison and they were concerned about the trial he was going through and that did that brought them together in a sense? They're concerned for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you don't have a lot of church splits in Russia and China. There's not enough pastors to split them, and you're too busy with other things to worry about the nitty-gritty, 
penny ante stuff that we fight and split over today. Yeah, who, who who gives a rip? You know, we're just happy to find another Christian. I don't care if he raises his hand when he sings. You know, I'm just happy there's one around. You know, we we just get. I don't know. I, I, you know, we've talked about this in class before, and we'll probably do it again sometime. But you know, just the stupid stuff that people get so exercised about in a church. You have to ask them in the eternal scheme of things, who gives a rip? Who cares? I remember when MacArthur was, he said they were building their church out there. He said he had more fights over the color of wallpaper on the ladies' bathroom wall than anything else. It's like, why? You know, it's like, why? What's the, what, so what? You're going to the bathroom. So what? You know? Uh, I was, yeah, as long as the toilet's flush, it doesn't smell bad in there. I mean, what's, geez, you know, who cares about the wallpaper on the wall, you know? There are countries where, you, you know, you're glad to have an outhouse out back, you know? Um, what's the problem here? But, but what happens, I think, it's so easy for Satan to magnify these little things into such great big irritants that you have to ask yourself, you know, what, what is the mindset of people? Why is it that people think this way? What causes it? Part of it is, uh, like you said, China or whatever, the people there are grateful for anything they can get. Here, Americans are very spoiled. Yeah. They're used to getting their own way. I didn't get my own way in church because they didn't sing the music style that I wanted. I'm going to leave and go someplace where they do that. Yeah. We had the luxury, you know? really, of being able to go to how many churches in our own yeah. Or yeah. third world countries, they'd, they'd have to walk another 40 miles to get to their church. You know, it wouldn't be worth it. I, th I think one of the things that bonded Paul in this church was the trial he was going through, and they're sharing with him. And, uh, you know, Paul's sitting there saying, I'm wondering if I'm going to be thrown to the lions or leave. He wasn't worried about who's raising hands while singing in church. He had a bigger problem on his hands. And I think our problem is today we're so distracted. And I have a theory about that. I believe a person's discontent level at a church is directly or inversely proportional to how busy they are in the church. Exactly. The less busy they are, I got somebody agrees with me, see. The less busy they are, the more they have to whine and mumble about. People who are busy trying to do something, busy trying to serve the Lord and honor Him, they're not. They don't. They don't have time to fool with this stuff. Um, it's really fascinating. I had, I had a friend of mine, who wanted to know why, you know, why I didn't leave this church. I was asked that. Why are you still going to that church? When are you going to leave? The question is, when are you going to leave Open Door? And I said, Why would I want to leave Open Door? He said, well, you know, you and pastor don't agree on some theological things. And I said, well, am I going to agree with everything your pastor teaches? What's the implied answer? Probably not. Well, don't you think God can use you somewhere else? I said, yeah, God can use me where I'm at. Why would I want to leave? And then I started asking myself, well, 
why is this person saying this? And the more I looked, the more I realized they weren't doing anything. See? See, if you're not doing anything, you have time to sit around and complain about the way things are. All right? But if you're busy serving God and wanting to bring the gospel and the good news to people, you don't have time to fool with this stuff that doesn't really matter in the long term. And that's, I think, what you see here in this church, that Paul was saying with them, they were partakers of his, of his trial, in a way. And because of that, he was thankful for them. And they weren't caught up in all of this trivia that we get caught up in. But then he makes a prayer for them. This is his prayer. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. You're doing well, but I'm praying that you will do better. You're doing good, but I want you to do better. Abounding more and more. And uh, what this is, is a prayer for spiritual growth. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges, I think, is um, when we compare the biblical prayer that Paul had not only here in Philippians, but the one in Ephesians and the one in Colossians. And then we take our prayers today and look at the two. There's quite a bit of difference. Our prayers are me-centered. Most of our prayers are centered around comfort. They're centered about health and happiness and well-being. Paul's prayers were centered about spiritual growth. My prayer is that you would have a deep knowledge of Christ and that you would have discernment. A deep knowledge of Christ. How do you get a deep knowledge of Christ? You spend time with Him. How do you get to know anybody really well? Yeah, I guess... Um, one of the things I've thought, of, thought about once in a while is, you know, is Jesus Christ going to be a complete stranger to me when I get to heaven? I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, we'll never know him as well as we could in this life, but, but don't you want to know him as well as you can? So when you get there, he's not a complete stranger to you? Paul prayed that they would have a deep knowledge of Christ, not a knowledge about Christ. Not knowing, you know, all the, you know, you could go through the book of John and all 216 names he's given in the book of John or, or you know, all the theological stuff around, but to know him as a person. Paul says, I want you to know Christ and I want you to have a discerning wisdom. I want you to be wise. I want you to see with spiritual sight. And uh, this the idea of discerning wisdom, what, what's, what's behind the notion of discernment? The ability to know what? True from false, good from bad. How about best from good? The ability to make decisions and know what you should be doing. 
Now, do we have that in the church today, for the most part? Sermon? Yeah. Yeah. What church do you go to? Is the American church a discerning church? No. No, we're not. There are some that are discerning, but as a church, are we very discerning about things? No. But we should be, right? We should be, but we're not. We should be, yeah, but we're not. We're compromising. We're compromising. Um, yeah, you walk down to church. I remember I was talking to one lady. She said, well, you know, I want to give to the church, but I'm still giving my pledge to the 700 Club. I want to say, well, what are you giving to the 700 Club for? You know, oh, they're nice people. You know, they love Jesus. I asked her, I said, well, do you know what they really teach? Well, no, but they use God talking, Jesus talking. And I wanted to say, you're a fool. I didn't say that, but... Because you're not discerning. I mean, you're not even asking the questions. And today, here's the problem. Not only do we not ask the questions, but we're not allowed to. Because if we ask the questions, we're being judgmental and critical and narrow-minded and bigoted. Intolerant. intolerant. That's another word. We're being intolerant. We're not allowed to be discerning anymore. And as it is, we're afraid to take a stand on anything. We're afraid to say something is wrong and something is right. One of the things I just got off the internet in fact, just before I came here tonight, um, is uh, there's a transcript I got off uh, CNN. This is the uh, Larry King uh, interview with Bob Jones III from Bob Jones University. Um, you know, the big hoopla about uh, Bush going down to Bob Jones and all this stuff. But here's a transcript. They had uh, Bob Jones III on, who's the president of the college on Larry King Live, and I'm reading down through this. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't agree with everything Bob Jones says. And I would never go to his school. But it was interesting, one of the things that was interesting as this was bringing out, is how Larry King was totally astounded that someone would be discerning about anything and actually say there's some things that he wouldn't do or that are wrong. I mean, it's like he, he didn't relate at that level. He couldn't understand, for example, why Larry King would call Catholicism a cult. Don't they have the right to believe the way they do? And what, what Bob Jones is sort of saying is, yeah, they have a right to believe what they do, but I have a right to say that they're wrong. But see, today we've lost the right to tell anybody that they're wrong. To tell somebody they're wrong is to be intolerant. Um, Oberlin College, I remember when I worked there at Oberlin College, we had a particular prof, um, Gilbert Mickelson, I think his name was, who uh, was quoted in Wall Street Journal. And basically he said, you know, homosexuality has contributed to the breakdown of homes and is a negative influence on society. Well, the students wanted him thrown off the campus. I mean, they rallied to have his tenure revoked. Now, legally, you can't do that. But they wanted him fired. And the whole question they asked him is, well, I thought you guys believed in freedom of expression. Yeah. Well, he's expressed himself. Well, he's not allowed to do that. Why? Well, he said we're wrong. He's not allowed to say that. 
but doesn't he have freedom of expression? Well, yeah, but no, he doesn't in this case. You know, it's sort of, you, you, they want this, and they want this. I mean, it, we have a society today that says, believe anything you want, just don't believe you're right or tell anybody else they're wrong. But you're not allowed to believe that. I mean, we have freedom of expression, but then we're not allowed to express ourselves. And when you talk to some of these talk show hosts, you know, like Larry King, it doesn't, he can't relate to somebody who's discerning about anything. He thinks they're nuts. Don't they have a right to make their own decisions? Don't they have a right to choose their own path? And one of the things was, he, you know, he's ripping on the rules at Bob Jones. I'll tell you, they got rules out the gazoo. You think, you think your church is legalistic. They got rules down there that you don't know exist. You can go there for four years and find new rules you never knew existed. All right? They have a lot of rules. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons I didn't go there. Because I thought some of them were silly. Now they no longer have a ban on... Uh, yeah, they got rid of the racial ban. They, they just got rid of that just, just recently. But, you know, you, they, they had rules. You could get demerits for doing just about anything wrong down there. You get demerits and not know you got them. You know, I mean, it was that bad. But, uh, you know, it's a very legalistic, very, very strict thing. And, and Larry King is incredulous that people would, would go there. And what Bob Jones III said, he said, look, you know, they know that before they arrive. The parents know what's required of their students, their children, before their children come. It's no secret. They know that up front, and they make the choice to come there and to live by these rules. Now, if they don't want to live by those rules, there's a lot of other schools in the United States you can attend. But why do I have to say I have to let anybody do what they want? But see, we have a society today that you're not allowed to discern anything. And in the spiritual realm, we have the most undiscerning group of Christians that have ever lived today. Somebody stands up and uses the name of Jesus, and we think they're a great pastor, preacher, and they may or may not even be talking about the same Jesus. But it doesn't matter because we're to be tolerant, we're to be open minded. Yeah. Don't you think it has a lot to do with ignorance of, of the yeah. believers? I mean, people who just aren't educated in the Bible. The dumbing down of the church. I mean, it's interesting. When I was, when I was doing an um, Old Testament survey, I forget where it was. I think it was over in Cleveland West. I would be talking about some Old Testament stories. And I'd have people with blank looks in the classroom. Like, we never heard that one. <laughs> Elijah? There's a guy, Elijah, in the Bible? We didn't know about that. And I asked him, well, how long have you been a Christian? Well, I've been a Christian for 10 years going to this charismatic church. Well, that explains it right there, you know. I mean, the whole point, the whole point is that in a large segment of Christianity today, discernment and doctrine are not important. What is important is feeling and emotion and relationships. That you know anything is not relevant. And what it produces is a group of Christians that are going from one feeling to another. Look at the Toronto blessing. Now, will any sane Christian say 
that is the power of the Holy Spirit that will cause somebody to get on all fours and bark like a dog? Is that the Holy Spirit? I mean, if God showed up, would people be barking like dogs on the floor? But it doesn't matter because it's an experience. It must be the Holy Spirit because people feel so happy afterwards. And when you say, but the Bible doesn't say that, say, well, see, that's your problem. Your mind is getting in the way of God talking to you. You've got to let go of your rationality. Don't think about it. Just feel. And one guy says, if you want to know what's true and false, just ask the pit of your stomach. It'll tell you. How do you feel about it? Um, the Bible wants us to be discerning. Paul says, I want you to abound in knowledge of Christ and in spiritual discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now, how do you approve things that are excellent, good, if you don't know how to evaluate them? If you don't have any rules for evaluation, how can you pick out the good stuff? You don't. You can't. There's got to be some standard by which things are measured. And Paul says, I want you to be able to pick out the, the, the excellent things in order that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Implied in that is if you don't pick out the good things, what may happen? You may be insincere and you may be with offense. Don't believe everything that somebody tells you. Don't, don't buy into every new theological notion that flies across the evangelical landscape. Don't pick up on that stuff. Think about it. Reason. Use your mind. Compare it with scriptures. Ask God for insight. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is the... It says here, the fruits which are righteous. What do you think that is? What are righteous fruits? Holy living, reaching people for the lost, godly character as you find over in Galatians. All of that, I think, has to do with good fruit. We're to exhibit good fruit and how and by the way, where's the what's the source of that fruit? It's Holy Spirit. How does the vine bear fruit? It stays connected to the branch. The way you bear fruit is you stay connected to Christ. And as you are connected to Christ, your relationship with him will evidence itself in your life by fruit that you will bear. You don't have to go around saying, I gotta get fruit, I gotta get fruit. It'll happen. It's a byproduct of your relationship with Christ. And he wants them to be filled with this fruit. Be filled. Which has the idea of it not just being a, a, a dried up grape hither and yon, but actually be abundant. The amount of fruit you produce in your life is directly proportional to how close you are to Christ. If you abide in the vine, you will bear fruit. That's what Christ said. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. 
But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Here, here's Paul with a proper perspective on things. See, if the average American Christian would have found themselves thrown into prison as Paul was, what would their pro what would their response be? Nobody cares for me. Why did God do this? It's not fair. Pray that I would be released. Yada 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 yada. What did Paul do? I wonder who God wants me to preach to here. I wonder what he wants me to do here. See, Paul, it was interesting. Paul never, ever, ever was concerned about what circumstances he found himself in. You never find him upset about it. You never find him asking that God would, would make his life better or reduce some misery or give him some better circumstances. He never prayed for that. Rather, what he prayed for is that wherever he was, God would use him. And whatever, later on, he says, whatever state I am, therewith to be content. I want to be content with where I'm at. Because after all, as he says here, God is sovereignly in charge. The, reason, the things that have happened have actually furthered the gospel rather than hindered them. You say, now wait a minute, Paul. You're the A number one preacher in the world at that time. How can throwing you in prison and restricting your freedom further the gospel? Well, later on we find out how it was. How, how did it get furthered? He got to preach to Nero. He, got to, he said many even of Caesar's household. Now, if Paul had not been in the Roman prison, would Caesar's household have heard? No. See, you've got to understand that God is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives. And everything that happens, happens for a particular reason. Now, how would Paul, do you think Paul could have walked up to the pal and said, hey, I'd like to preach the gospel to you all. Can I come in? No. But as a prisoner, being chained to a Roman soldier every day, 24 hours a day, meant that they couldn't get away. And it says here that the whole palace guard and to all the rest, who are all the rest? Well, the rest of the people in the palace. That my chains are in Christ. What does that mean? Well, as a guard, what kind of people did you see come in and out of the prison? Prisoners. What kind of prisoners? Bad criminals. And Paul is saying after a while, they're sitting there asking a the question, what's this guy here for? Let's see, murder. No, he's not a murderer. Insurrectionist. No, he's not, he's not an insurrectionist. Thief. No, no, he didn't steal anything. After a while, they've come to the conclusion that the only reason Paul is there is his testimony. That's an interesting thing. Because I know some Christians today that shouldn't be in prison, but not because they're Christians. Paul 
all said that it's become very evident to the palace, to the people there, that I am not a insurrectionist, I'm not a criminal. Rather, they understand that the only reason I'm here is because of persecution, because I named the name of Christ. And that was a very powerful testimony to these people. It reminds us of what Peter says in 1 Peter, says if you suffer as a Christian, don't suffer as a criminal. Don't suffer as a thief or a busybody or an evildoer. Suffer as a Christian. Today, however, we suffer. You know, I, I get amazed. You know, I've, 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 known, I've seen them come and go, acquaintances in my life. You know, they do something really stupid and they're, they get in trouble for it. And then they talk about how they're being, they're being persecuted for Christ. And it's like, no, you're being persecuted because you're an idiot. I didn't tell them that, but that's what I'm thinking in my mind. I, I say something much more diplomatic. But it's really, the, you know, you're, wait a minute, you're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because of you. Don't blame God for that one. Like the, like the anti-abortionist. Yeah, if you're an anti-abortionist, you burn it down a clinic and get thrown into jail. Don't say, I'm suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because you're a criminal. You know, I mean, the, the whole point there is that we, we need to make sure we suffer for the right things. You look like you're thinking, Don. I'm only thinking that even doing that, though, is part of God's plan. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also thinking that, you know, it was preordained Sometime in history. Past, poor, that he, so he's using words to get in with you. So he's yeah. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, we, we need an Arminian in the crowd to talk some sense into this guy here. You know. No, it's uh, nowhere in the Bible. He, he's being funny, I hope. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever condone sin. They say, well, that's the way God ordained, ordained that you would commit that sin, so just go commit it. You know, why bother? Um, well, look at the uh, yeah. slavery that got his ear cut off. The man that cut his ear off. Christ wouldn't have said that was right. Yeah, he said, you did the right thing, Peter. We'll leave it off on the ground. You don't know. Put your sword away. Put it back on. But uh, he says here, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Why is that? Because Paul was having a significant positive influence in the Roman government. Now, not to Nero, because who is Nero? Who is the, the Caesar? Well, that was Nero. He's a bad guy. But all the people under them, Paul was having a significant positive influence. And because of that, people who would normally not preach Christ were being encouraged to preach Christ. They were becoming emboldened by seeing how Paul was treated, and he wasn't being mistreated. And in fact, Paul thinks he was going to be even soon released. Which meant that no, the Roman government at this time did not consider Christianity a threat to the empire. And they were bold and confident. And then it's verse 15, says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. 
The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What's he talking about there? Well, he says, you know, Christ is being preached. They're being emboldened to preach. But, you know, there's really two crowds that are preaching out there. One, it says, is preaching out of envy, strife, and selfish ambition. Who are these? Well, these are the ones that say, you know, Paul really committed some bad sin. In fact, God put him in prison because of his... His, the way he's done things, and, and we're the next spiritual leaders that you should be listening to. And what they were trying to do is discredit Paul, discredit his ministry, and in so doing, lift themselves up as being his equal or superior. And they were preaching Christ out of envy, strife, and selfish ambition. Now, did that bother Paul? No. Christ is being preached. Who cares? Now, would that, bother most, would that bother most preachers today? Yeah, because we've got egos, right? We don't like people saying bad things about us. But Paul here says, you know, I don't care what they're saying. You know, I don't, I don't care whether they're saying I'm in prison because I'm some criminal or some bad. Christ is being preached. That's the important thing. They're preaching Christ. And I'm not worried about their motivations. I'm worried about the message. So do you think they were actually Christians? Probably. They just preaching for the wrong, with the wrong motives. Yeah. They may have been preaching to try and, 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 and uh, create some ministry for themselves. Or something. And, and, and this is the interesting thing here. God even uses bad motives and still can bring some good out of it, doesn't he? Yeah. In, in saying that, I don't think Paul is uh, condoning no. their behavior. But I think he understands that um, you know, God is the one that judges motives. You know, vengeance is mine. So he doesn't worry about things that are not... Uh, you know, his sphere of influence is right. giving that to God. Because obviously these people are doing a wrong thing and, and God is going to judge him for that. He's, he's happy that Christ is being preached whatever the motivation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And God will sort out the motivation. And uh, I think that's a good thing for us to understand. We like to sort out the motives, don't we? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes. People get really excited about that. Well, this, you know, this happened, and the person said, well, that's because he da 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 da, -da. Well, They don't know that. They don't know that. No. You see, they preach him from selfish ambition, not sincerely. And, and, and the idea of supposing to add affliction to my chains is sort of make Paul feel bad when he gets the message that, hey, you know, Joan so-and-so is over here preaching that you're in prison because you... You displeased God, and, and, and God's got you on the back burner because of your actions. Paul says, yeah, so what? Didn't bother him. And then he says, others preach out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Others are using me as an example of God's faithfulness. 
Others aren't, aren't worried about that. What then, only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that Christ is preached. To me, that's the important thing. How did Paul view his ministry? Well, I got a little note here. He never complained about the circumstances he found himself in. You never hear that. He saw every trial as an opportunity to spread the gospel. He did not have to be the center of attention, but was willing to take a back seat to others as long as the gospel was preached. Now that's the hardest thing for some people to do today. They always want to be the center of attention. Paul says, I don't need to be the center of attention. As long as Christ is preached, that's all that matters. His greatest concern was personal holiness so as to avoid being disqualified from the ministry. He said, I beat my body daily. The word there is to punch with the fist. I don't want to be disqualified through some sin. He gladly bore suffering in the name of Jesus. It didn't matter to him whether he suffered or not. He saw himself under a divine mandate to preach the gospel. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. <clears throat> to him it wasn't, a, it wasn't a career choice. It was a compulsion. He preached not himself, but Christ. He, he wasn't touting his own ministry. He was touting Jesus Christ. Now, that's a good question to ask of these guys on TV. Who are they trying to promote, themselves or Christ? Think about it. He sacrificed all personal comfort for the sake of the ministry. Spent, what, a day and a night in the deep, and all of the... All of the just the, the, the trials that he faced. He didn't care. And it says he did not count his life dear, but gladly risked it for the cause of the ministry. Paul was concerned about the ministry. That's all he was cared about. That's all he was concerned about is Christ preached. Great, wonderful. And the gospel was preached even here to the Praetorian guard manifested in all other places. And then in verse 19, we have one of the great, great um, statements. For I know that this will turn out to my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, according to the earnest expectation and hope that nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, so always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. We've often used that phrase, to live as Christ, to die his gain. It means, you know, to live is great, but if I die, that's even better. Now, unfortunately, we don't see it that way today, do we, as much? To live is to lose it all. Or, I mean, to die is to lose it all in our day and age. What is in relation... I I have a friend who struggles with to live as Christ and to die as gain because she has a, a very hard life and she would love to die right now and go to heaven. And so I, I have a hard time expressing to her that to live as Christ. Do you know what is the joy for her in her should it be turning her circumstances into opportunities? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, I mean I mean 
you, you look at you look at a Christian like uh, Fanny Crosby. Anybody know who Fanny J. Crosby is? You ever hear that name? She was a songwriter. And uh, she was born blind. Well, she wasn't born blind, but she was blinded accidentally. Never able to see, but she wrote thousands of hymns. One of them, Blessed Assurance, is one of my favorite ones. Um, now, she could have sat back and whined and moaned and groaned and cried and about being blind, but no, she turned that into an opportunity. Johnny Erickson could have sat in a bed and whined and moaned and groaned about being crippled, but she turned that into a worldwide ministry. Now, what would have happened had Johnny taught, Erickson taught and never had that accident? You know who she was? Never heard of her. Yeah, never heard of her. Who yeah. yeah. But, but God used that tragedy to turn it into a, a display of His glory and His grace. And in the same way, if you're going through severe trials, maybe God's trying to show people what he can do in the life of somebody who doesn't have everything work out the way they want. That's a tough thing to come to grips with. It's not easy, especially if you're the one going through the trial. But Paul was saying God's power, he wants God's power to be magnified in his body whether I live or whether I die. Whether I live or die is irrelevant as long as God is glorified in my life. One of the questions I've asked myself um, as I work through my family history is what's going to be on my tombstone if I die before the Lord comes back? You know, what are people going to say about me? What are they going to say? What influence am I going to have on other people, if any? You know, am I going to be one of those nominal Christians? You know, somebody asked, you know, what defines your life is not your birth date, your death date, it's the dash in between. What, what happens there? Paul says, I want to glorify God, whether by death or whether by life. Because quite honestly, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is good and that I can share Christ more. They can see Christ in me. But to die is far better for me. And the very fact that God has left us here means He has some unfinished business for us to do. When God's done with you, where do you go? Heaven. So He's not done. But if I live on the flesh, this will remain fruit for my labor. Yet what I choose, I cannot tell. In other words, if I keep living, that just means more fruit. What's that? Well, I have more influence. I want you to think about this a minute. I want you to think about this whole notion here a minute. Philosopher Al, as he is looked at, things over the past few years, one of the things I've found a lot of times is as, believe, as Christians, when we witness, when we do things, we're, we're seeking something. We're seeking control 
I've seen, I see this a lot. Control in the sense that, you know, we think I want to go proclaim the gospel to somebody and they respond to be a Christian right there. You know, I want, I want the scalp or the notch on my Bible. I want now. Um, people want to, I've seen this in the church, they want to make a suggestion about how things should be and immediately that comes into being. They want to control. And I've run into people that all they want to do is they want to control this, and they want to control that, and they want, they want to have the control. And that carries over to the spiritual realm where we want control. I don't think that at all is to be the goal of our life. Can you control anything? No. Here's what I think our, goal, our desire should be, and that's influence. I can't control anybody, but I can influence them. Now here's the problem. If I'm trying to get control and it doesn't go my way, what am I going to be? I'm going to be frustrated, I'm going to be cranky, I'm going to be angry, I'm going to be upset. But if I go for influence and it doesn't go my way, so what? I mean, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. I'm not going to stay up at night worrying about how things are going to turn out. I'm not going to be mad because I didn't get my way. I'm going to influence. And when I proclaim the gospel to somebody, if they don't respond to Christ, well, that's all right. Did I influence them in a positive way? Are they a little bit closer to maybe taking Christ as Lord and Savior now than they were before I showed up? And I, I think the goal for, you know, I'm just telling you my philosophy here. My goal has never been to control because I can't control anything. Nuts. I can't control my own life half the time. But what I can do is I can influence. I can influence. And here's the interesting thing that I found. Okay? People who seek control, those who seek control, how much influence do they ultimately have? Not much. You know, you, you, after a while, you, if you're a control freak, after a while, you, you control a little bit of the universe, maybe. But I'll tell you what, if you, if you try to influence, you're going to find over time that your influence is going to grow. Now, you've got to understand what I mean by this. It's not you want to influence for the sake of control. That's, that's the wrong thing. Because that's just going back to this whole notion of control. You just want to influence. That's all. Can I be a godly influence? And I find, I have found, that the more I seek to just be what Christ wants me to be, the more I seek to be godly, the more I seek to just, just exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the more that sphere of control, or not control, but that sphere of influence will grow. And it, it, it's subtle, and you, you, it, you don't notice it, but it does. And Paul's desire here is that if he lived on, 
this fruit that results from his godly influence in life would expand. Be an influencer. I guess the question, I guess the, the challenge here is to be an influencer. You don't need to be a controller. You don't need to demand to have things go the way you want them. Just try to influence it. Paul says, I want to be an influence. And, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the way, that's the tact I've taken with my evangelistic efforts. I mean, in most cases, I'm just trying to be an influencer. I can't control people. I can't, you know, I'm, I can't get this notion, well, I'm going to share the gospel and immediately going to say, you know, you're right. I'm going to take Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And it ain't going to happen that way. It may take years of influence for them to see Christ in you and to be attracted to Christ. And that's what Paul says here. And he says, what I choose, I cannot tell. The idea there is I'm sort of torn between the two things. On one hand, I would like to stay so that I can be an influence. On the other hand, I just assume die and be with Christ. I mean, that's the better option of the two. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having desired to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. If I depart and go to Christ, that's, that's good for me, bad for you. If I stay and am able to influence you and minister to you, that's bad for me, but good for you. Paul saw his need to stay to help these believers. What did he want to do? He wanted to go to heaven. And being confident, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. And this sort of gives us a hint that Paul was sort of thinking that he was going to be released fairly soon. Because he said, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to continue here. In other words, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be you know, executed for my faith in Christ. Rather, I'm going to stay and be with you. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. That you would really rejoice when I showed up at your door. Yeah? Do you think Paul had any idea that these letters he was writing would become our Bible? Nope. So he, he didn't really realize what he was saying. He was just writing it to them. That this is his personal letter to them. First Timothy, he was writing it to a guy named Timothy. He, he didn't know we'd be reading it and having commentaries on this book 2,000 years and probably misinterpreting everything he meant to say. He was writing a letter to a friend. I mean, all of his, actually all of Paul's letters were, I don't think Paul ever intended them to become scripture. I think he was just writing letters to friends. To people. He was just thinking of it in terms of the believers that yeah. he had no idea that we would need to Instagram What would have happened had Paul gone home early? Well you may be we'd be missing first and second Timothy and Titus. I mean you know we'd be missing things and God has his sovereign purposes and plans. Then verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Well, I want your conduct to be worthy of the gospel. The way you live, I want it to be worthy. The question is, is the way you live worthy of the gospel? One of my great disappointments over the years is to see how many times in churches that doesn't play out. I want to ask people, do you know what your actions are doing for the testimony of Jesus Christ? Do you really care? Sometimes I don't even know if they care. Paul says, I want you to be worthy of the gospel of Christ so they may hear of your affairs, hear of what you're doing. And specifically, in what sense does he want to hear? Well, with one, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me ask a question. Does that mean you agree with everything? No, it's not saying that at all. It's not saying that. Does that mean that uh, you're not allowed to disagree? Doesn't say that at all. But when it comes to the major plan, the major activity, what are you to agree? That's what we need to be doing. See, one of the interesting things is I think back is that, that one friend that asked me, said, well, Alan, you know, when are you going to be leaving open door? I want to say, you know, I, I want you to know something. David Wallace and I, we don't agree on every theological issue, but no, no two Christians do. But I'll tell you what I do know. We agree on the gospel. We agree on the message. We agree on the need to reach the community for Christ. We agree on what the real important stuff is. And that's really what matters. We can debate and discuss some of this other stuff, but we agree on this. Think about going back to World War II. You know, you, you had different branches of the armed service disagreeing on what soldiers should go where and maybe what battle they should do, but they did all agree on one thing. We got to beat the Germans and the Japanese. That, that's the big picture. That's what we need to be striving for with one mind. Now, we may disagree on how that's accomplished or maybe some, but we, we're, we're focused on that. And that goes back to what I really believe the people who cause trouble in churches are the people that really aren't doing anything. They're not striving for the faith of the gospel. They're not striving to reach their community for Christ. They're not doing that at all. What we do is we fight over methodologies. We fight over style of music. We fight over what is it, unhinged. I can think some of the people that I knew long ago in this church, if they went to the unhinged service, you'd carry them out in a comatose state. They couldn't handle it. And the question is, is Christ preached? Yes. Is the God, Word of God upheld? Yes. Then where's the rub? I think Pastor was telling me, he was talking to some, he's on the board of Denver Seminary. And uh, some guy, he's, he's on the board of directors, and they're, um, they're trying to find some president for the college, Denver Seminary. And uh, one of the guys there that, that's a professor there took off on, on 
on um, this whole notion of, uh, of, you know, trying to reach your community in a contemporary way and on, about how we need to get back to the old hymns and the preaching and, you know, the Bible and, uh, you know, women wearing skirts and all that kind of stuff. And he asked the guy, he told him to shut up, which he did ask him, I think. And then he asked the guy, I said, when's the last time you led somebody to Christ? And said the guy couldn't honestly remember. Now let me ask a question. What's, what's important? I mean, what's really important? I mean, you got people out there saying, we need to get back to this, we need to get back to that. And you ask them, well, when's the last time somebody in your church was saved? Let's see, uh, I think it was about three years ago we had somebody. Well, you know, what are you doing? For Christ. I mean, what, what's Paul say here? I want you to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That, that's, that's the important thing. That's what you're dying on. All this other stuff, don't worry about it. Get a life. I want to ask some people that. Get a life. Get a life. And, and then he says, And not in any way terrified by your enemies, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. What does that mean? Don't be terrified by your enemies, because when they persecute you, what does that prove about them? They're in perdition. What does it prove about you? You're on the right side. Don't worry about you. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. For you have been granted on the behalf of Christ not only to believe Him, but also to suffer for his sake. The, the Philippian church was suffering at that time. And Paul says it was granted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer. That was God's plan for them. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. The same conflict that I'm going through is the same conflict you might be going through. Don't be terrified by your enemies. To them, I mean, what it proves is that they are sons of the Satan. What does it prove to you? You're sons of God. It proves to you that you're on the right side. Don't, don't worry about them. I, I think, I don't know, I, I just think as I, as I look at 27 and 28, the big picture item that keeps coming through to me is that we need to, we, we need to be unified on the big picture things, the, the things that are of eternal value and and all of this other stuff, you know, let's not let it detract us from the real purpose. The real goal, if you will, of preaching and reaching and talking to the lost and bringing them the message of salvation. Well, let's, let's take our break now and we'll come back and do chapter 2. I'm thirsty, I need to get something to drink. Let's go on with Revelation. Yeah, Revelation chapter 2. I teach Revelation on Sunday mornings. I teach Philippians here. I teach Thessalonians on Monday. So if I get mixed up, just slap me. Um, can we line up? Yeah, you can line up. Um, Philippians chapter 2 um, is... Uh, one of the very most important chapters that we'll be studying. In it we find some great theological issues regarding the deity of Jesus Christ and His work 
in the incarnation. Um, but in the first four verses, Paul comes back and talks about this conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, he says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Um, if you want to solve church splits and church divisions and all the junk that goes on, just get them to live these four verses and they'll solve most of it. In fact, as I've seen, you know, the, some of the upheavals that we've gone through at Open Door in the past couple of years, if people would just follow verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, none of that would have happened. But we aren't very good at following the Scripture. The therefore in chapter 2 is not a there, therefore if. When we think of if, what do we think of? Option. Okay. We think of it could be, it could not be, you know, if this or if that. Well, in the Greek language, there are different kinds of conditionals. A conditional statement is like an if, if this or that. And this particular conditional here is what they call a first class conditional, which is not an if, but a since. It's better translated since. Since there is consolation in Christ, and since we have comfort in His love, and since we have the fellowship of the Spirit, and since we have received affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy. In other words, it's not if you've got these, but since you have these. And these are all things that we've received from God. These are all the, the privileges that we have as believers. We, we are given some great, great privileges. We're given comfort. We're given love. We're given fellowship. And I did there, fellowship of the Spirit is what? Sharing. Sharing in the Holy Spirit. Um, maybe it helps if I turn my notes the right side out. What do you think? I'm trying to find chapter 2 here. Alright, here we go. And uh, the whole point is that we have these things because of that. What should we do? We should fulfill his joy by being like-minded. There's that joy word again. See, it, it might be interesting to go through and find out how many times in Philippians the word joy appears. My joy, I rejoice, I'm happy. It's all over the place. And Paul is saying, you will fulfill my joy if you be like-minded. Being like-minded. What does it mean to be like-minded? Does it mean everybody says the same thing? Have the same goals. Have the same goals. That's the thing. Going down through here on chapter, or page 2 of the notes, consolation in Christ, parakaleo, exhortation, and it could be the comfort of Christ, or better translated, maybe the encouragement of Christ. We have His encouragement. <coughs> We have His love, Christ's love for us. It's comforting to be in His love, to realize that He loves us. 
and have the fellowship or the participation in the Spirit. Who participates or shares in the Holy Spirit? Believers or unbelievers? Believers do, not unbelievers. And the idea of compassion there is the compassion that some say it's the feelings of the Philippians towards each other, but it's probably best translated God's feelings towards us. His compassion and His mercy to us. These are great and wonderful truths that He's given us. And because we have these great truths, we should be like-minded and not fight and squabble. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. It's the mental thinking process. The idea there is we may conflict on how we do things now and then, but the goal should always be the same, all of us. And see, that, that quite honestly, to me, that's one of the most important things. That's one of the most important things. Um, one of the reasons that I have stayed at Open Door and I continue to stay here and participate is because I share the same goal as this church and that is to reach the lost and to build up the body of Christ. Um, you know, we, we can maybe do things a little different hither and yon, but the goal is the same and that's where unity needs to be extended. Now, let me explain what is assumed by Paul here. What is assumed by Paul is that the doctrinal basis for that unity is an, a sound doctrinal basis. Paul is not calling for unity at any price. Paul is not saying, I want you to be unified even with those who deny the deity of Christ, even with those who may um, deny the inspiration and authority of Scripture, even with those who deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's not the kind of unity he's calling for. Because the unity is centered around the gospel. Look what it says back in 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And, and the word there, faith, when we see that, what, what, what do you think of? The faith of the gospel. <clears throat> What do you think of? When I, I think whenever you see the term the faith, it's referring to something very specific, which is what? The foundational beliefs of the gospel. The faith. Um, Jude uses that over in Jude. He says, I want you to contend earnestly for the once delivered to the saints' faith. It's a body of truth. The faith is a body of truth that is centered around the gospel, the good news. And that is our rallying point, our unity. If you want to go back to my earlier illustration of the pyramid, and my crude way to understand this as I work, struggle through this in my own spiritual life, this right here, that top E part, is what Paul is talking about. That is where we need to have unity. Now, we can't have unity with someone who denies this piece. 
we can't have unity because unity is centered around the faith. All right? And he said, I want you to strive together for the unity of the faith. Having the same love. The same love for one another as Christ has for us. Because that what love has he just talked about? God's love for us we're to have for one another. Being of one accord, of one mind. Um, the word there, simsukoi, mean, and we get the idea of symphony from that. Now, if you get a whole bunch of instruments, you start banging and clanging, they sound awful. But if you get them playing a certain way, you've got beautiful music that comes out of that. And what Paul is saying is that we need to be of one accord, one mind. And the idea there is being intent on one purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is the proclamation of the faith. Now, if you're not unified on what the faith is, you really can't proclaim it. And that's where our unity lies. And what I see in churches, for the most part, in local churches, like some of the things you know we've had to work through at our church, and maybe you've had to work through yours, it's not centered around this. It really isn't. It's centered around all this other stuff. It's centered around all of the preferences. You know, what color hymn books are you going to have? You know, what kind of music are you going to sing? What version of the Bible do you use? Are you going to use an overhead projector? Or are you going to make people open hymn books? You know, all of that junk is what we fight over down here. And that's what fractures a church. What should fracture a church, if anything, should be a deviation of part of it from the faith. I'm getting on my soapbox, but you know, I'm just trying to understand the text for what it says. Now, how is it that this unity is violated? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife, or vain glory. Strife, erythian, means selfish ambition. Don't let anything in the church be done through self-ambition, and don't be conceited. Conceited there is void of glory. An empty glory. A glory based on nothing at all. Empty, vain glory. The, the, and what I've seen a lot of times is what happens when somebody in the church has some selfish ambition and, and they, they cause all kinds of grief. It's a selfish ambition. It's, it's something I want. It's not centered around this. It's not centered around faith. It's centered around something down in here. And I make it a point of contention. And because I make it a point of contention, it causes disunity and disharmony. And he says, I don't want anything to be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Loneliness means to, to uh, have a, the mentality of a slave. To not always... The whole idea, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about last week in Ephesians 5, where, you know, the real reason people leave churches, the real reason you have trouble is 
they didn't get it their way for the most part. And the people who don't get it the way are the people who have selfish ambition or vain glory. Um, there are churches that have been split over people who did not get to sing a solo. What's that? Selfish ambition. I want to be the big schmo up there singing the song on Sunday morning and I didn't get to sing and I don't like that and they must not like me and before you know it you've got all kinds of junk going on in the church. I didn't get my way. Or somebody wanting to just be puffed up and be the big cheese and want to be the head of the deacon board or whatever and he doesn't get it and that causes trouble. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.